Before we get into our scripture reading, let's just take a moment to um, get into our bodies and kind of get into this moment. Um, I noticed this morning on my way to church that I was feeling a lot of a kind of internal hurry. I don't know if you felt that way. It's not supposed to be like that in the way of the church, but I'm just kind of telling you what it was. Um, and so I had to just literally like put some kind of quiet music on in the car and just slow myself down and take some deep breaths. And I know that we all come in hot here on Sundays, just kind of with life and all that's going on in our lives. So we just always try to take a moment to pause and just remember that God is here and present with us. And we want to kind of anchor ourselves in this moment, in our bodies, in the presence of the loving Trinity. And so I just want to encourage you to take a deep breath in and take a deep breath out. You can lift your hands, you can close your eyes, you can keep your eyes open, you can do whatever kind of feels uh, restful for you here in this moment, peaceful for you. And let's just take a moment to pause and to ask God to speak to us. And then I'll pray here in just a moment. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you as you have welcomed us. We open up our life, our minds, our bodies, our souls, our spirits, our relationships, all that we are. We open them to your loving presence. We thank you that you are present here with us, that you see us, that you've created us, that you know us, you love us, and you long for us to experience redemption in Christ. So would you come and speak to us, help us to listen and to obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter five, I'll read from verse 13 down to 25. Paul says this, for you were called to be free Brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. 
I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, we kicked off the Lenten season with a new series called Sin and Redemption. And last week was just an attempt to kind of answer why. Why do we need to talk about sin and how should we be talking about sin as we frame this conversation in our own lives and in our cultural moment in which sin has kind of disappeared from our vernacular, our, our vocabulary, um, or it's confused in how we talk about it, or we feel conflicted, right? Because we experience all of the kind of the symptoms of sin in our society, all the brokenness, and now we have no language to talk about sin. And so I try to lay out, just sketch out a little biblical theology of sin last week. If you didn't have a chance to listen to that, I encourage you to go back. Um, but I started with this quote, and I'll start here again. It's profound. Blaise Pascal, the Christian philosopher, said this, certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine of original sin. And yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. One of the passages that we started with last week, we included last week in our biblical theology was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. What's been classically categorized as the three enemies of the soul, as we talked about sin, um, I think it's important for us to recover these categories um, as we're building kind of our, our dictionary, our lexicon for sin. Because oftentimes, uh, as we talk about this, both inside and outside the church, we tend to reduce the conversation down to maybe one or two of these factors. And, and as, as we have kind of a, a more limited diagnostic, we have a more limited uh, range of options for treatment. And so Ephesians 2 says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So what I wanna do for the next few weeks is take these successively one by one and look at these. You'll notice I underlined them here, the world, um, what we'll call the powers, which we'll talk about next week. And then today what I wanna focus on is, is the flesh. Um, and this is a weird one for us because we have all kinds of uh, weird kind of stuff with body, flesh in our, in our kind of cultural moment. So I wanna talk today from Galatians 5 about the dynamics of the flesh, what it is and what it's not and how we find freedom from it. So Paul begins Galatians chapter five with this call to freedom. Several times you'll notice in this passage, the word freedom. Verse one, Paul says, for freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Now, like we said last week, scripture never talks about sin without framing it in the context of God's broader vision of shalom or grace or what Paul in this passage calls 
the freedom to become a person of agape love. That's the vision of freedom that Paul lays out here in this passage. And that's really what the whole book of Galatians is about, a little context. Paul is writing this, it's a circular letter, so it was sent to Galatia, to a city, an urban church that Paul planted, and then it was to be read out in other churches that Paul also planted in the region, which is now known as modern-day Turkey, but was Asia Minor then. And there was a group that, of Jewish disciples that came into Galatia after Paul left, and they essentially were teaching that you had to keep the law, you had to observe the Torah, and specifically you had to be circumcised, which you can imagine was not a great popular teaching with the men uh, of that time, in order to be a follower of Jesus. And it was so persuasive that Paul says in Galatians 2, even Peter and Barnabas, two of the pillars of the church, were led astray into hypocrisy. And so the essential question that they were asking and they were teaching around was, do Gentiles have to become culturally Jewish to become followers of Jesus? So it's partly a theological question about the nature of the gospel in relationship to the Torah, but it was also a social question about the nature of cultural identity and practices and food and bodies and relationships and how all that worked together. And so Paul's answer to this question is absolutely not, right? He says in verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters, and if you wanna underline this, this is the basic point of the book of Galatians, what matters is faith working itself out through love. And he goes on to say in verse 13, you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, there's our word, but serve one another in love. So for Paul, the goal of the Christian life is not external conformity to a religious code or a creed, but faith, or that word can be translated trust in God working itself out through love. So freedom for Paul meant a deep, loving union with God that, that frees a person internally first and then externally eventually to give themselves away in self-sacrificing agape love that, like God, is learning to will the good of others ahead of our own. So if that's the vision of a flourishing life that Paul is inviting us into, which is really just a restatement of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, then sin, as we said last week, a definition of sin is anything that distracts us from that vision. It's anything that distracts us or hinders us from becoming people for whom that kind of agape love is the natural, not the forced, not the occasional, but the natural overflow of their life with God over the arc of their lives as human beings. It's human flourishing. This is the vision. This is radically different than the way that we often think about freedom in the modern West. While Paul, and Paul really booting off of Jesus, who talked a lot actually about freedom, uh, Paul offers us a vision of what we might call positive freedom, which is a, a freedom to love God and to love other people. Our secular age traffics in what you might call a negative freedom, right? A freedom from all constraints to essentially do whatever we want. Now, historically, you can trace this all the way back to like classical Greco-Roman philosophy. I'm sure you guys read that, read that all the time. But if you go back to the, the, this philosophy that would have been prevalent in Paul's day, um, freedom was an important concept. It was about virtue. It was about self-mastery. And it was about the common good. One of the leading social movements of that day, Stoicism, which ironically is kind of be, have, like it's having its heyday. It's being revived 
if you've read Ryan Holiday's, like the obstacle is the way, he's a modern day stoic writing to a lot of men about the recovery of virtue. That, that's positive freedom, right? They argued that to detach yourself with, uh, from vice was to be able to give yourself away in virtue. This is positive freedom, the freedom to choose what the, what the Greeks and the Romans called the good, the true, and the beautiful, and to cultivate those virtues, not just for yourself, but to build a society of flourishing. And this profoundly shaped the history of Western thought for several millennia, really up until the modern period. Now, that is not how we talk about freedom today. Our current postmodern culture is dominated by a more negative view of freedom, right? The freedom from external constraints of oppressive authority structures like the church or scripture or tradition or any sort of binding commitment that might lock me into uh, you know, uh, having to love somebody and put their good ahead of my own. And the purpose of casting that off is not about virtue and virtuous living, but it's for the purpose of self-expression and self-indulgence. That's what we call authenticity, right? Self-expression, be true to yourself, and self-indulgence. Don't tell anybody, don't let anybody tell you what to do. In other words, a simpler way to say that, freedom in the modern world is the unfettered ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, as long as, there's a caveat, right? As long as nobody is what? Harmed or hurt. Now, the problem with that is there's no small debate, amount of debate about what constitutes harm and the fracturing of our moral vision is really multiplying harm because we can't agree on a definition of harm, not liberating us from it, I think you could argue. And so, uh, there's a great little uh, line from Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy and David Souter in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 that kind of really uh, puts in a nutshell what our modern definition of freedom is. Here's what they say. At the heart of liberty, so this is kind of like enshrined into law. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence or of meaning of the universe and of the mystery of human life. That is a lot of pressure. No wonder we feel so anxious. It is on us to decide for ourselves as modern, you know, kind of post-enlightenment, you know, uh, technologically savvy, well-educated, you know, Westerners. We have the right and the responsibility to define our own concept of existence. I don't know about you. I don't really feel like I'm up to the task of defining my own concept of meaning or even of just, I can't even figure myself out, nevertheless, figuring out the world but that's how we think about it. If you wanna go more pop culture, just so you don't think I'm all academic and philosophical, I'll, I'll go in the gutter with you. Billie Eilish, in an interview for Vogue, said this, my thing is that I can do whatever I want. It's all about what makes you feel good. If you just wanna put it in a statement that has become kind of the stuff of like Disney film, um, you do, you do you. Now, the irony is that definition and vision of freedom is what Paul actually in this passage calls slavery. The self-centered pursuit of the flesh, sometimes good things like money or sex or power, it starts out feeling like freedom, right? Like when you leave home, this is otherwise like known as college, like you go to college and you'll have this like four-year hall pass, right? And you're like, oh, it feels so good to be out from underneath my parents and all their restrictions and my church. And it feels like freedom for about five minutes. And then you realize like, oh, like there was some wisdom that was being handed down to me there. 
And what feels like freedom in the end ends up controlling and enslaving you. You can't not do it. It becomes hard to do good and easy to do evil. Freedom without self-mastery leads to personal and social ruin. Notice Paul's language here in verse 15. If you live in the flesh, you will end up biting and devouring and consuming one another. Is, that, is there a better description for our cultural moment than that? Biting, devouring, and consuming one another for our own self-interest. Augustine called this the shackles of gratification. When we give ourselves to gratification, we end up in bondage. John Mark Comer, who has an excellent book, some of you guys know I work part-time at this organization called Practicing the Way and have learned a ton, and his book, Live No Lies, is so helpful in informing and shaping some of this material even. He has a great little chapter on this, and he says, much of what our world calls freedom is what the way of Jesus and many others calls slavery and vice versa. Or in Orwellian terms, freedom is tyranny, and tyranny is freedom. Negative freedom is just a modern societal manifestation of what Paul calls the flesh. So the question we want to wrestle with today is how do we become free of its grip on our lives, and how do we live into the kind of freedom that's offered by Jesus and Paul and by spiritual writers down through the ages in the church? Last week, I used that great phrase from Barbara Brown Taylor, sin is our only hope. And I think that's what we want to do today is to look at and wake up to and be able to name the realities so that we can diagnose properly before we try to prescribe treatment for the healing of our souls and our relationships. We want to be able to name the dynamics of the flesh so that we can live into the freedom that God purchased for us in Christ. So let's look at the flesh. What does Paul mean when he talks about our flesh? There's a number of different ways that the Library of Scripture talks about this Greek word called sarx, S-A-R-X. That is the word for flesh here in this passage. And it may surprise you to know that a lot of the references to sarx are not bad or evil in the Bible. It's not an inherently evil term. Sarx has three kind of primary uses in the New Testament. Often it's used in reference to our bodies and to our physicality. It's not the totality of our bodies, but usually you'll hear like phrases like flesh and bone, like the strong and the soft parts of the body. Paul talks about different kinds of flesh in 1 Corinthians 15, mortal flesh that's subject to decay and sickness and illness, what we're living in now. And he contrasts that with immortality, this new body that will be given at the resurrection that's powered by the spirit and is immortal. And so these references, if you, if you do that in the plural form, uh, it can refer to all humanity as in 1 Peter where he says, all flesh is like grass. So flesh, again, here is not bad, it's actually good, but it's limited, it's, it's mortal, it's impermanent, it's transient, it's passing away. And I think it's important for us to just say this, that, that we, there's been a tendency in the church to collapse flesh and body together, right? So there's two words in the Bible that are used in the New Testament that are used for body. One is soma, that's our church's name, soma, means body, the body of Christ. And then one is sarks. So let's make sure that we remember the body is not created evil, and that's a big mistake that's been made throughout church history. And it leads to all kinds of weird anthropology in terms of how we think about our bodies. The flesh can be used and turned away from God, but the body in the totality of who we are, our physicality was created by God to be good. It's a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, right? So 
let's not confuse those terms and make sure that we don't leave here with a negative view of our bodies. It leads to all kinds of self-hatred and self-contempt and harsh treatment of the body, which Paul says is not the way of Jesus. The second way it's used is for ethnicity. You can read that in Romans 9. And again, good, the way that it was created, our cultural identities, but the potential to be abused for selfish purposes. And then the third way is the most predominant use in the New Testament, especially in Paul, and that is the way it's used here. Paul calls this in Romans 7, our sinful passions, referring to our flesh. Here we see uh, in verse 16, the desire of the flesh. This word desire is the word epithumia. It means essentially like desire and overdrive, right? So desires are not bad, but when desires move away from God and not towards God and they're put into overdrive, they become what Augustine essentially defines sin as, as disordered desires, right? Or what one author calls our base animalistic primal drives for self-gratification and survival. Now, what Augustine meant by disordered loves or disordered desires is that we as human beings are creatures of love and desire, right? To be human is to be a lover primarily, and that's different than like our Western model, right? We, we think of ourselves as brains on a stick, right? Um, it's just, you know, our bodies just exist to kind of carry around our mental faculties. But that's not the ancient paradigm for thinking about humanity, for thinking about what it means to be a whole person. We are creatures of love and desire. We are driven by our passions, by our desires. And in ancient classical thinking, we had a hierarchy of desires, right? Some that are higher and more noble and pointed towards good purposes and oriented towards beauty and peace and flourishing. And then some lower and more animalistic ones that are oriented towards destruction and death and manipulation and coercion and the like. And this is not unique to Christians. This anthropology has been shared across religious traditions uh, and philosophical traditions throughout the ages. Buddha talked about this. Plato talked about this. More recently, Henry David Thoreau talked about the kind of animalistic spirit that lives within us. If you've ever read um, Jonathan Haidt, he's got some books out on kind of morality. He's a social psychologist, not a believer to my knowledge. Um, he calls this part of our brain the animal brain or the animal self, okay? Now, according to Augustine, the problem isn't desire itself or, or love itself, but what we love and how we order our loves. That's the basic problem that Augustine's identifying, right? So what he said is we essentially love the wrong things or we love the right things in the wrong proportion, now, look at the works of the flesh here. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. Verse 19, he says, the works of the flesh are obvious. So when you think, if I, if I say to you, what is, what is sin or what is the works of the flesh? You might, your mind probably immediately goes to like bad things, right? Like stealing or murdering somebody or, you know, like excessive greed or abuse of power or something like that. And that certainly is in this list. But, but notice how Paul talks about this, the, the works of the flesh. Sexual morality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. These are mostly good things taken to extremes. He talks in here about sex, a good gift given to us by God, but when loved out of order and becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes sexual immorality. He talks in here about ambition, a good thing. It's not bad to be ambitious. It's bad to be selfishly ambitious. Morality, relationships, 
food, drink, pleasure. Even, did you notice in here, religion shows up in this list. Religion, and this is kind of like the sin of the Midwest. Good things done for wrong reasons. Bad, fleshly. And I would say the most insidious version of the flesh is the religious kind that co-ops God in service of self because it's the one we can't see. And religion has turned into kind of a hollowed out performative thing to be done for the eyes of other people instead of the eyes of God. These are all works of the flesh. Now, I don't have time to do a deep dive, and I know some of you are going to thank me that we're not going into the history and philosophy and, you know, cultural. I know I can do that sometimes, so you're welcome. But if you're interested, on the screen, I've put up two great resources for you. I cannot highly recommend it enough. The shift that has happened from where Augustine was, where the church was, to where we are now in our modern moment, there's a whole story and a meta narrative here that you need to look into. If you're a reader, especially Carl Truman, who's a historian, I think one of the most important books written in the last couple decades, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, explains this shift. And on the left, if you want the Cliff's Notes shorter version, Strange New World. It's a tour de force and essentially traces out the shift in how we think about desire philosophically and culturally. He goes all like into Freud, uh, into Marx, into a bunch of romantic poets. I mean, it is masterful. Uh, but if you don't want to read it, let me just tell you what he says real quick. I'm not going to go into the depths, but here's what he essentially says. Everything changed with Freud. Augustine says the main problem is disordered desire. Freud flips it and says, no, 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 the major problem in the world is not disordered desire. It's the repression of desire that's the problem. Happiness comes not through restraining the flesh, but actually through aggravating and gratifying unrestrained desire. It comes through authentic self-expression and self Indulgence, do what you want. What is the exact opposite of what Paul says a life in the spirit is like? And, and again, if you, want, if you just wanna watch another documentary and nerd out and have so much four hours, the century of the self on YouTube, this is the foundation for modern advertising, which basically says what you just need to be happy is a little bit more. Now, again, if you're in advertising, not throwing shade at you, okay? There's, there's like a, a, a just way to do advertising, but I'm saying it is built on the principle of the flesh in terms of our desires. Now, here's the problem with that framework. We have competing desires, right? You and I are a cauldron of desires, conflicting desires, competing desires. So if the goal is to express your most authentic self, the question we as modern people are wrestling with that is creating so much anxiety for us is which of my desires is actually the real me? Okay, you do you. That makes me so anxious, I don't know me. Do you? Okay, you're like in your 20s, maybe you do. But like anybody over 40, do you really know who you are? That's the worst question you can ask anybody with an ounce of self-awareness. And that's what he's talking about here in this tension between the spirit and the flesh. We have these two selves, these two operating systems, Mac and, and PC, that are like operating inside of us. I won't tell you which one's the base animalistic of those two. One is aimed towards life with God and one is aimed towards gratifying the desires of my flesh. Here's the reality I live in, I don't know about you, every week. I have four children, I have a wife. I want to be a good husband and a good father but I also want to sleep. <laughs> and I want to read. And I want to be comfortable. 
And I want to just lock myself in my room sometimes and not deal with any of it. I want to be in good shape, as you can tell I'm not doing a great job of. But I also want to eat a lot of ice cream. I want to be a man who communes deeply with God and who walks with Jesus and is full of the Spirit. But every week, like Paul in Romans 7, I also want to sin. And not in all the ways that you guys can see, most of them inside of me, because I'm a pastor and I know how to do the socially acceptable sins. Paul says in Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Do you feel that tension? So here's the good news for us. Comer says in his book, our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires, or not always our deepest desires. So where you feel that pull towards illicit pleasure, where you feel that pull towards the flesh, just because you're experiencing that doesn't mean that's your deepest and truest desire. It might be in the moment your strongest desire, but then to act on that is a sort of neurosis in and of itself if that's not actually in alignment with the way that you've been created to flourish. That's a recipe, Paul says, for slavery, actually. So how does that work? How do we actually end up getting enslaved? Because you're like, no, 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 I'm free. I, I, I'm, I'm an autonomous, educated, you know, Western person. Nobody tells me what to do. I make it, okay, fine. But let me just tell you what Paul says, how this happens, because if you were deceived, the essence of self-deception is you wouldn't know you're being deceived. And that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 6. You flip over one more chapter, verses seven to eight. Don't be deceived. So he's writing to people who are deceiving themselves. And that's why he says, don't be deceived. The implication is you are deceived. Paul's hardcore. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. This is how bondage works, and this is the pathway to freedom, sowing and reaping. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm. I wish Christian was in here. He's the only person I know that grew up on a farm. <laughs> but here's what I know about farming. I haven't read about it. This is like goodwill hunting, you know, you know all this stuff and you never actually done it. You get what you sow and you get more than you sow. You sow seed and you get what? A harvest. You get a whole crop. There's a multiplication effect. To bring this into modern parlance, if you're in finance, this is just basically compound interest. A little done, repeated over time yields vastly disproportionate results, right? This is how the cycle of deformation happens in terms of how the flesh operates in our life. We just call this the cycle of flesh-driven deformation. Sow a desire, reap an action, sow some actions, reap a habit, sow some habits, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a life trajectory. That's what Paul means when he says, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that you can't inherit the kingdom of God if you're a sinner. It's that you don't want it. Heaven and the kingdom of God will be the last 
place you'd want to be. If you spend your life practicing the way of the flesh, heaven would be, and the kingdom of God would be miserable for you. Right? Planting a, calls this the law of returns in his book, A Brevery of Sin, which again is kind of a great little reflection and reading for Lent. I'm reading through it right now. He says, a fuller statement of the great law of returns would therefore go, go something like this. Sow a thought, reap a deed, sow a deed, reap another deed, sow some deeds, reap a habit, sow some habits, reap a character, sow a character, and reap two thoughts. And the new thoughts then pursue careers of their own. And on and on it goes on repeat. And now again, Christians aren't the only ones figuring this out. If any of you have ever read Atomic Habits or The Power of Habits, that's all it's basically saying, right? Like your character is formed through the habits that get encoded into your muscle memory. Your brain literally wires neural pathways when you repeat the same behaviors. And that's why it's hard to stop eating ice cream because it's in my genetics. I'm like passing this down to my kids, down to the third and fourth generation. This is how every sinful fleshly habit works. Like just, this is how adultery works, guys. You don't just wake up one day and commit adultery. It's like a thousand small decisions that start way upstream, right? And it's like you nurture that, that grudge and you begin to kind of uh, nurture what um, uh, Gottman calls, one of the great authors on marriage, um, he calls it uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. One of the primary ones is, he said, what kills marriages is not adultery, it's actually the stuff that happens before adultery. It's contempt and it's criticism. Two of the four big ones. And you begin to sow that habit over time and you nurture grievances against your spouse and you begin to skip out on the basic things that you do to invest in a healthy relationship, and all of a sudden you begin to drift slowly and slowly and slowly apart to the point where then when somebody comes along and there is a temptation, the easiest thing for you to do is just to capitulate and say yes. But the decision to do that was made way back upstream when you sowed that first desire that then became a habit, that then became a character. And you could talk about the same thing with like criticism, C.S. Lewis says one of the most insidious sins, he talks about this in Mere Christianity, is grumbling and complaining, becoming a negative person. How many of you know negative people? They're just always complaining. And it's like kind of funny, like the sarcasm and the mockery in your 20s. It really gets exhausting when that person gets to 50, 60, or 70. But like you become that kind of person because you complain and you grumble and you're negative and you nurture grievances and wounds and you begin to live out of those. And all of a sudden, that becomes your character such that you can't not be critical, right? Because the way to counter criticism is to, is to lean into gratitude. It's to learn to see God's presence and power at work in people instead of always seeing the negative. C.S. Lewis said, hell begins with the grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And you could talk about this with pornography. You could talk about this with greed. You could talk about this with addiction. It's all the same dynamics. So 
a desire, reap an action, sow an action, a couple of actions, reap a habit, sow some habits, reap a character, and you sow a trajectory for your life, either one that's aimed at life with God and peace and joy and love, or one that's aimed at destruction and death in the flesh. Now, that's super depressing, (laughs) but it's real, and it's why so many of us struggle, right, because we live in the flesh. We live in a society where, again, it's just easy. Our whole society is powered by principles of the flesh. Even in the church, it's not like the church is exempt from that, right? Like, we operate on a lot of the same dynamics. We're just aware of it and trying to name the the toxic, you know, noxious fumes. It's like radon, if you're in your house. Like, we just have a radon detector, and we're just beeping, but we still operate on a lot of the same dynamics. And so the question is, how do we find freedom from this? Right? That's why we're here. That's why we're talking about this at Lent, not just to name the dynamic and beat ourselves up and shame ourselves. It's how do we find freedom? Because again, Paul's invitation is not just name your sin and say how bad you are. Paul's invitation is, I want you to find freedom in life with God. But if you don't understand this dynamic, you will be on the proverbial, you know, uh, like you will be on the, on, the, on the hamster wheel. You will be in the cul-de-sac of stupidity, just making laps, right? And just calling that normal life. Paul's like, I want you to get out. There's a pathway out. One more time, John Mark says, freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want. That's slavery. Freedom is the ability to live in the spirit and want what the spirit wants. That's true Freedom. It's the kind of habits and character where you don't just do the right things, but your desires, if you trace it all the way back to the root, your desires are actually to want to do the right things and then to choose those right things consistently over time and become the kind of person who is a person of agape love naturally because it flows out of your character. And we've gotten so cynical because we think that's not possible, but Jesus begs to differ and Paul begs to differ. That's the arc of freedom for a Christian. So how do we walk in this kind of freedom from the flesh in order to be able to love God and to love others wholeheartedly, right? Paul gives us two kind of invitations that are really just one invitation. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then he says, be led by the Spirit. And then he says, keep in step with the Spirit And then he says, here's the fruit of the Spirit. Are you guys getting kind of Paul's drift? The Holy Spirit's kind of an important component. But then he also says, crucify the desires of your flesh. Well, that feels kind of like negative. That feels super like harsh and like ascetic and like do we need to become a monk who lashes ourselves anytime we like disobey God. But actually, it's the same thing. So in our formation, in our transformation, God has a part to play. And, and we have a part to play. Now, hear me, this is not like a private investment firm where you and God are like 50-50 partners, okay? God does the heavy lifting. He owns all the resources. But there is a sort of synergism. That's what the ancient writers and theologians used to call it, a synergism. We are co-laborers, co-workers, read the New Testament, with God. Paul says, work out your salvation that's been worked into you with fear and trembling. So God has a part to play. He does the heavy lifting from beginning to end, Paul says. It is his work, but we are invited to participate with him in working out our 
salvation. Augustine said it like this, without him, meaning God, we cannot, without us, he will not, right? We need both. So here's how it works in the book of Galatians. Here's what Paul's big point in Galatians. Galatians 2.20, when he's talking about crucifying our flesh and walking in the spirit, in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been, I have been, me, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me by faith. So what Paul is saying is that by faith in Jesus, who faithfully lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we should have died, and who rose from the dead, bringing heaven to earth and the future into the present, Jesus was crucified to break the power of the flesh, to break the power of sin and death and fleshly desire to reign in our lives. So Jesus breaks this power in our lives. He brings us into and unites us with himself by faith. That's what baptism is all about, about, right? United with Christ in his death, united with Christ in his resurrection. But here's the key. We have to actualize that power in our lives. He doesn't do it for us. It's like if I said to you, hey, your great-grandparent just passed away and left you an inheritance. And I checked with some financial people. They don't sell inheritances. It doesn't get like zapped into your account. I'm dealing with insurance right now, like tens of thousands of dollars trying to get my insurance. And it's like the check has to be sent to me. And then it's like got my insurance company's like co-signature on it. So I have to send it off to them. And I have to, this is like a $20,000 check. And I have to wait like four weeks for them to send it back to me. And then I have to co-sign it and go deposit it to get the money in my account. Now that's not exactly a great analogy, a perfect analogy. But my point is we are invited. Jesus says, take up your cross, follow me. I'm not gonna zap it. I'm not doing a matrix thing where I download this into your hardware. And so Paul, playing on that phrase from Jesus, says, crucify the desires of your flesh by walking in the spirit. It's one thing. It's one movement. It's one idea. He says, I've given you a power that you have access to. Now, open yourself to the power, essentially is what he's saying. Now, don't confuse, when I say power, don't confuse what I'm about to say with willpower, right? Now, I'm all for willpower, I'm not against willpower, right? Jesus came to to heal our will as well as our spirits and our bodies and our minds. But like the problem with willpower is it just doesn't work most of the time. (laughs) You ever experienced that? Just like, I'm going to do something. And even some of you, we have a lot of like type A self-disciplined people here, but like even you, you come to the end of your willpower at some point and it breaks down. especially with like deeper issues of like trauma and struggles with the flesh. Willpower is no match for addiction. It's just not. And that's why when you go to AA, probably the most honest space for like formation I've ever seen, they'll say to you a couple things. They'll say, the problem with you is you because wherever you go, there you are. That's an AA saying. Wherever you go, there you are. Think about that. Then they'll say, the first step to healing is to admit that what? You are powerless. You need a power from outside yourself to come and save you. And that's where our part comes in, right? We utilize what have been called the practices of Jesus or what many people call the spiritual disciplines. Now, spiritual disciplines are wildly misunderstood in our context in the West, 
right? We often equate spiritual with disembodied, despite the fact that most of the spiritual disciplines have to do with our bodies, right? It's getting the truth of Jesus from our minds into our bodies and living in our bodies and living out the life of God. Discipline has like a negative connotation, right, in our culture and often can trigger thoughts of like legalism or moralistic behavior modification. So we don't talk about spiritual disciplines at SOMA as much. We talk about practices, spiritual practices, because that's actually the language of Jesus. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about practicing his way. In Acts, they were called the way because they practiced the way of Jesus. And then, or, or training is like another metaphor that Paul will use, right? And so we refer to them as practices from the way of Jesus. Spiritual practices then are just simply ways that we open ourselves to the energizing power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. The same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus has now been poured out on us. And as Augustine says, God now lives in us and is deeper in us than we are in ourselves. That's Galatians 2. Christ is in me, I no longer live. God is in me deeper than I am in me. And so it's a way to open ourselves to that power, to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. It, the, the language, the verbal like participles and stuff here, it's continuous regular practice. It's essentially just have a lifestyle of opening yourself to the Spirit. Create an environment where the Spirit can dwell and move freely in you. That's the heart of spiritual practice. And so what we're doing essentially to take the slide from earlier and just put it back up again is we're not following a spiritual formation driven by the flesh, but one driven by the spirit. So think about just walking back what we said earlier. If we can sow to the flesh, then we can do what? We can sow to the spirit. That's what Paul says. Sow to the spirit. So what do we do? The Holy Spirit sows desires in us for God, sows a desire for love, sows a desire for peace, sows a desire for shalom. And then we have a choice. You have a choice to act on that little nudge from the Spirit every single minute of every single day. The question is, do you recognize that the Spirit is speaking to you and are you choosing to act on it? Every day you are choosing essentially to sow to the flesh or sow to the Spirit. You sow some of those actions, they become habits. And all of a sudden we have spiritual habits and then you sow some habits and we have a Christ-like character. And you sow a Christ-like character and what do you have? A life in the spirit, in your actual normal life. Just as sowing to the flesh reaps a character in a life of death of destruction, so desires given to us by the Holy Spirit and actualized, this is the key, actualized into habits repeated over time, of course, in the power of the Holy Spirit, become a character in a life full of the Spirit, leading over a long period of time, like the rest of your life, to increasing levels of peace and freedom and love. And in this way, Paul says, we become this beautiful counterculture to a society dominated by the flesh. And even crazy enough sometimes, even a counterculture within the church, because the church often, often operates on principles of the flesh. Look at what he says. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's just a countercultural way to live, it's a countercultural reality and trajectory for life in the spirit. We become a people of love in a time of selfishness. We become a people of joy in a time of despair. We become a people of peace in a time of anxiety. We become a people of patience in a time of reactivity, a people of kindness in a time of harshness. 
goodness in a time of brokenness, faithfulness in a time of compromise, gentleness in a time of violence, self-control in a time of self-fulfillment and self-actualization and self-indulgence and self-expression and self-everything. Now, you're like, that sounds amazing, but I have no idea how to do that. Can I just invite you this week and today into two simple practices from the way of Jesus? And I I just want to name these. We're not going to do a deep dive. We've talked about these. We have resources for you to step into this, both personally as a community. But I want to just end our time by pointing you to the resources that the Holy Spirit has given the church down through the ages that point us in the direction of freedom from the flesh. One we talked about last week, the first one is confession, right? Confession just simply means naming your sin, specifically and particularly. Not like, hey, I'm a sinner, sometimes in in general ways. But like, I yelled at my children. I was not kind with my words. I struggled in these particular ways this week. Like naming it specifically in the presence of God. And here's the key, in front of other followers of Jesus. Confession in America has become so privatized and individualized. And so we, we limit confession to coming in here on Sunday morning and just privately confessing our sins to God. And then we leave and we never talk to anybody else about it. Again, it's no wonder the AA is so powerful because there's something powerful about walking into a dingy basement somewhere. If you've ever been to an AA meeting, walking into some dingy basement and just saying, hey, I'm Brandon, I'm an alcoholic. And everybody says, hey, Brandon, we're glad that you're here. And then you just confess your sins. I mean, it's simple, but that, like, that's much closer to what the New Testament, I think, is talking about with confession than sitting in here on Sunday morning and just privately confessing your sins to God with no intent to actually go and try to make any changes and, and let anybody else know about it. Because there's something about bringing it out of the darkness into the light that just diffuses it all its power. You ever notice that? Like, you're so afraid when you get caught in sin to, like, tell people but then how much relief do you feel when it actually either comes out, because it will come out, right? The soul will find a way out. So if you're here and you think, well, I'm hiding this and nobody's there, you're wrong. You, you would be the first person in the history of humanity for that to be the case. It always comes out. But man, what a relief when you don't get found out, but when you just out yourself and you just say, hey, here I am with all of my ugliness. And again, you do that in a safe place, not where somebody's going to weaponize your sin against you, but the church ought to be the safest place in the world to have that conversation. Why are we not? James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that what? You may be healed, healed of your sickness, healed of your illness, healed of your sin. It's possible. And then the second one is just fasting which is what we do in the season of Lent. We have a guide to guide you there for the season of Lent. Historically, the church fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays twice a week. It was a core practice for the church. Jesus mentioned it as one of only three spiritual disciplines that he said are core in Matthew chapter six, when you pray, when you fast, when you give alms, when you're generous. Those are the three core practices Jesus mentions there. And it was just an expectation that the church would fast. It was so important for them. And they developed an entire season called Lent, the 40 days before Easter, which was basically just a big fast. They would fast to sunset every night, and then they would feast. And fasting basically does two things. It cultivates self-awareness. It puts you in touch with your body, with your desires, with your emotions, with your thoughts. It puts you in touch with what's really happening inside of you, which sounds amazing, but it's kind of not, which is why I realized I hate fasting. 
I don't like knowing what's going on in here. I prefer to stay right here. Service level, please. Richard Foster says, fasting reveals what controls us. And it is. I see all the ugliness. It all comes out when I'm fasting. But the point, again, is not just to to notice things. It's to reorient those desires to God. So I notice in me these desires. And what I'm doing in fasting is I'm saying no to the flesh, no to my body's passions, which are at war with what the Spirit of God most wants in me. And I'm learning to say no to those and say yes in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's this process of discerning desires that lead you toward life with God from desires that lead you away from life with God. And the way that you generally know if a desire is good or bad is just look at the fruit of the Spirit. Is this desire over time leading me to become more loving, more joyful, more full of peace, less anxious, more self-controlled, more gentle, or not? And if it's not, there's a good chance that's a desire that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be reoriented to God. And again, the goal is not to kill your desire. We're not Buddhists. We're not Star Wars, right? It's not killing your desire and becoming all detached. It's about reorienting your desire away from yourself towards God. You can't live without desire. You must desire or you die internally, right? So underneath all of your desires for money, sex, power, these good things but that get disordered is a desire for communion with God. That's why you need the desire. It, it's, it's meant for God. It's just aimed in the wrong direction. It needs to be straightened out towards loving God and loving other people. Okay, now, we're gonna go to communion. And what I wanna just invite us into is just a space of reflection and the space to hold all of this before God. Because I realize, like many of us walk in here, we're just tired, right? We're tired and exhausted. I think I said that last week. We're tired and exhausted by our sin. And that's why I love Paul's pastoral realism. Galatians 6, Paul says this, let's not get tired of doing good. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the battle with your flesh. Don't give up, it's exhausting to continue this process of dealing with your flesh, reorienting yourself in the power of the spirit, it's hard and you're probably tired. Don't grow weary in doing good for if you stay faithful and if Jesus will guard you and protect you with his grace, you will reap at the proper time, which he does, you will reap at the proper time, a harvest of righteousness. That's what we want. And so I just wanna invite you just to kind of put your stuff down, just to take a moment, again, take a deep breath all the resources that you need to live a life in the spirit have been given to you in Jesus Christ. What belongs to him, if you are united to him by faith, belongs to you. It's your inheritance. Jesus died to purchase it for you. And so if you are weary, if you are tired, if your sin is just overwhelming you, I just wanna remind you what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. I will give you rest in your mind. I will give you rest in your body. I will give you rest in your soul. I will be for you eternal rest and eternal life. So with that kind of posture, with that kind of invitation from Jesus, maybe in your imagination, would you just respond in whatever way seems appropriate? I wanna pray over you, and then we'll go into communion. And this is just a time for response. And so maybe that doesn't prompt anything in you, and that's okay. Maybe for some of you, there's a deep longing to get serious about sin in your life. I mean, there needs to be what the ancients used to call prayer for tears, the gift of tears. God, would you break me and humble me and help me see my sin? Would you just help me to weep over my sin? When was the last time we wept over our sin? 
Maybe there's that longing to be free. And today, we step into that. We just say yes to Jesus. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word from Paul. So many thousands of years ago, but so relevant to our lives now. We battle with the flesh. We wage war with the flesh. And we feel tired. We feel exhausted. We feel defeated. And we fail time and time again. And yet here we are, God. We show up again to receive from you as beggars our food, our bread, our life. And so Jesus, would you just be for us in this moment everything we cannot be for ourselves? Would you feed us with your body and your blood? Would you give us the resources we need to walk in the confidence that we are your beloved children in whom you're well pleased. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.